It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode for the Eleanor London Code St. Luke Public Library. My name is Marissa Miller, and I'm the author of Pretty Weird, Overcoming Imposter Syndrome, and Other Oddly Empowering Lessons. The book officially came out this spring on May 25th, 2021, and it was published by Skyhorse and distributed by Simon & Schuster. It's my debut novel, or more specifically, a literary nonfiction collection of essays that contends with themes of imposter syndrome, which we'll get to, body image, grief, resilience, rejection, and many other themes that we all feel but that few of us talk about. So I work primarily as a journalist based here in Montreal with my reporting published in the New York Times, Washington Post, Vogue, CNN Style, GQ, The Wall Street Journal, NBC News, USA Today, Cosmopolitan, Women's Health. But at my core, I've always been an essayist, a poet, a creative writer, having published several of my poems and anthologies by the National Poetry Institute of Canada. So my book is definitely informed by my academic backgrounds in both journalism and creative writing, but I really shied away from using this book as an opportunity to hone my reporting chops, and I'll tell you why. So imposter syndrome, which is defined as the feeling of being unable to internalize success, instead chalking it up to luck or coincidence, can be a very isolating feeling. In the book, I describe the way I thought I was the first person in the world to feel the way that I did, when in truth, the condition affects up to 82% of the population, according to some studies. And it's especially prevalent among minority groups and children raised in homes that prioritize success, um, and especially in high-achieving women like me. So had I known I wasn't alone in these imposter feelings, I hypothetically could have banded together with other like-minded women and collectively we could have fast-tracked our healing. So that's really why the book focuses on my lived experience in such an unfiltered way. You know, we've all had we've all read the the dry textbooks and brochures. We've all gone down those late-night rabbit holes on WebMT. But what I was really missing in my healing Um, And what so many of you I've been told are missing in your healing is the knowledge that our weirdness, our illness, and our pain is shared. I mean, sure, as a journalist, I've long been interviewing experts and clinicians about a range of mental health issues. But at the end of the day, I am the expert of my own experience. And this book really aims to showcase how you can be the expert of your own life too. So the irony of trying to own the accomplishment of writing a book on the topic of imposter syndrome is not lost on me. And trust me, every day since the book's publication, my brain has told me horrible lies about myself, like I don't deserve this achievement or that no one cares about what I have to say. But one of my favorite passages in the book helps me snap out of that mindset almost instantly. And this is it. Hopefully you'll walk away from this little piece of literature, understanding that our feelings of inadequacy often mean we deserve all of those great things that happen to us. 
We're worthy of success by virtue of us thinking we're not. Unlike folks who expect standing ovations for simply existing, cough, finance bros, cough, us imposters constantly strive to do better and be better in order to avoid being outed as frauds. The people splayed on magazine centerfolds you dream of emulating think they're hella weird too. And if they don't, well, you don't have much in common with them anyway, and you really don't want to sit through happy hour with someone like that. So I am very, excuse the cheesy word, passionate about driving this message home that I've really made myself a martyr for it. In the book, I tell stories so embarrassing that I thought I would have to take them to my grave as they were happening to me. And I have completely humiliated myself throughout these pages, but I would do it again in a heartbeat. Pure first-person storytelling is one of the most effective ways, I think, of communicating emotion and connecting with each other and ultimately enabling my readers to feel empowered and heard and understood. You know, I get very vulnerable in the stories that I tell in my book so that you may one day feel okay about your own own stories too, or that you may someday feel okay about the stories of someone you love or care about, but who may not necessarily subscribe to your same ideologies, be it your child or your spouse or your quote unquote weird friend like me. Hi. <laughs> Uh, I didn't realize that my favorite writers growing up would have had any more of a profound effect on my life than, say, making me sound cool when I brought them up at parties. But let me give credit where credit is due because they're really the driving force behind the entire book. I grew up reading and being inspired by incredibly prolific memoirists like Nora Ephron, Samantha Irby, Roxane Gay, Glennon Doyle, Cheryl Strayed, Caitlin Moran. The list goes on. And I always felt this deep catharsis during the moments in their writing that were most honest and personal to an almost jarring or profane degree. This type of candid writing really sent the message to my brain that I wasn't alone in my feelings of inadequacy. And and it was so unfair to me that I was only able to achieve this brand of relief by digging up my Kindle and finding their books. So this book of essays endeavors to be your escape away from the very things that have built barriers around us, like diet culture, rape culture, identity politics. And I I credit these women um, who came before me for paving the way in this genre of writing that I like to call soul exposure. Other ways, otherwise, I really don't know if I would have had the confidence to pursue this project. So what are these stories and what is the book exactly? So each of the 13 chapters or essays operates as a sort of standalone narrative, meaning that you can technically pick up the book at any point, flip to any chapter and read about an event in my life that contributed either directly or indirectly to my experience with imposter syndrome. However, I don't quite recommend doing that because these standalone chapters do work together to make a bigger point that I wouldn't want you to miss. And so what is that bigger point? Okay, well, it can be, I think, interpreted a myriad of ways. And I did that intentionally. So you can either see the book as the story of someone in a lot of pain who learned to 
over- overcome those challenges through years of therapy and doing lots of internal work, or someone instead who is deeply flawed and imperfect who never quite eradicated those issues from existence, but instead sort of learned to practice self-acceptance. And I tend to favor the latter conceptualization of the book because it's very much in line with the way the world works. You know, the world doesn't hand you your story at the end of your life wrapped up neatly with a little bow. Problems don't go away. Self-identified flaws, whether inborn or learned, don't necessarily disappear. We simply develop the tools to cope with them. And in my case, that tool has always been talking about it. You know, my first few years of consciousness involve talking about my bathroom habits or how much I weighed or openly discussing childhood traumas even before I knew that that thing was clinically called a trauma. So yeah, of course I scared some kids away in the schoolyard, but it also attracted all the right people. I always say, maybe I say this too often, that shame festers in the dark, but it's very true. Shame is really one of the most damaging emotions you can feel. And it's also, as my book aims to prove, a complete and utter waste of time and energy because the things that we are ashamed of have happened to us all. We have all at one point had a very embarrassing display of bodily fluids. We have all at one point felt the pang of rejection, be it you know, from someone we were interested in romantically or an entire institution. We've, no matter what we look like or who we are, we've all at one point been made to feel as though our bodies were not good enough, be they too thin, too fat, or too this, too that. So being afraid to talk about something doesn't make that thing go away. It just leaves us feeling alone with the pain and nowhere for it to go. So I want to address a bit of an elephant in the room. Why is my book so profane? Why are there so many swear words in it? (laughs) Like car accidents that we tend to be unable to look away from, I think vivid and revealing and honest memoirs unearth this almost primitive voyeuristic quality in all of us. So my stories and my language is, is really that car accident, so to speak, that I hope you'll be unable to look away from only because you recognize yourself in it. I serve absolutely no one by trying to characterize myself as the nice Jewish girl that I had always been told I needed to be in order to be worthy of any type of love or support. I'm sorry, but no one relates to that. So my Judaism plays a significant role in the book because it very much informs my relationship to my body and my career. So growing up here in Code St. Luke, shout out, uh, there was really no shortage of one-upmanship among families. And I always felt that I was this sort of heavy anchor weighing my family down from being anything other than perfect. And in my eyes, they always were. My parents, my sister, perfect. White picket fence levels of perfect. In the book, I describe how terrified I was of coming out to my science and math-driven parents as a journalist because... Let's be real. Jewish parents love you so much. They cannot fathom the idea of their child suffering in destitution or facing so much rejection. It becomes an almost pathological scar. At least that was the case with my parents. So the idea here is that because 
Jewish culture tends to set us up to fail when we pursue alternative career paths, like freelance journalism in my case, we oftentimes become unable to cope in the face of that unexpected success. You know, it doesn't feel real or earned, which in my case initiated a decade-long battle with imposter syndrome. And so pair that with my long-standing identity as the quote-unquote weird kid, it's really no surprise at all that success of any type felt like a foreign concept. Like I was sort of watching my life unfold before me like a movie. So I hadn't been able to draw a link between my eating disorder and Judaism until very recently because I was actually too afraid to go there. I was too afraid to consider the idea that maybe, just maybe, my grandmother's horrific experience growing up in an orphanage during the Holocaust did to some extent determine my relationship with food. There was sort of this overarching scarcity mindset that became encoded in her genetics and passed down from generation to generation, which we call intergenerational trauma. And sure, of course, that sort of revelation did provide some relief. And it is one that I hope many Jewish folks suffering from eating disorders um, might question. Um, But what was even more earth shatteringly frightening was not necessarily the origins of my eating disorder, but publicly admitting I had one in the first place. You know, I never looked the part. I was seemingly high functioning. And so in the same way, I've always been unable to own any of my professional achievements. So too, did I feel like an imposter eating disorder patient unworthy of treatment. So here's how I describe it in chapter five, which is called Something's Weighing on Me. Sip of water. Gotta stay hydrated. I never felt like I was a real eating disorder patient, so I never bothered seeking help. I wasn't emaciated, nor did I ever develop lanugo, a thin layer of peach fuzz coating my skin. At many points in my life, I've been able to order pasta at a restaurant without having a complete meltdown. So surely, nothing could have been wrong enough with me to warrant medical help. Sure, the DSM-5 now recognizes atypical anorexia as a condition wherein the patient meets all criteria for anorexia nervosa, yet possesses a body weight that's either within or above range. But if it wasn't a term broadcasted on hashtag thinspo pro-anorexia pages, I didn't want to hear from it. The only images of eating disordered I'd ever seen as of age 14, when my food phobias peaked, were paparazzi shots of Mary-Kate Olsen gazing doe-eyed over a bone-thin shoulder paired with tabloid copy that detailed her admittance into a rehab facility. No one looked at me and got worried enough to send me away to Arizona. So what's interesting about writing a memoir in this moment in time is that I did it in part as a rebellion against the idea that young people, or more specifically young women, have not lived full enough lives to have anything of value to impart. And that is just not true. My loneliness, please, please, Marissa, please don't start singing Britney Spears. Please don't start singing Britney Spears. Okay, good. (laughs) My loneliness as a young person and that shared loneliness among folks in my peer group is really testament to the idea that we need more young people telling their truths. 
You know, there's something so uniquely empowering, I think, about a young person telling their story in the thick of it rather than reflecting on it several decades later when the sting isn't quite there and there's really too much of a distance from the issue for readers to feel like they're right there with you. I wrote my memoir as my life was happening to me. And because it was so recent and fresh in my mind, um, I think, A, the language feels a lot more vivid and authentic. And B, the book acts as a sort of timestamp about what it means to be a woman in the world today or a Jew or a freelance writer or a victim of abuse or a person living with an eating disorder. You know, I've had an overwhelming number of readers come to me after reading my book who told me that it had really helped them navigate issues that they're dealing with with at this very moment in time, uh, or at least gave them the language to identify what it is they were feeling in the first place. And that's very valuable for my reader and thankfully very gratifying for me. So why did I write the book? That is a question I ask myself almost every day, and all I could come up with is that I wrote it so as not to disappoint my Jewish parents. I'm of course kidding, but that does happen to be a happy byproduct. I wrote this book because I never wanted anyone of any age, any race, any gender to ever feel as alone as I did, or that they too are unworthy of their achievements. Too many times to count in my life, I had been in so much unexplainable anguish. And I thought to myself, wow, I really feel like the first person in the world to be this sad or to hate myself this much. And being alone in that pain was only magnifying it even more. You know, I thought to myself, if if only someone were to pop out of the bushes like that awkward Kim Kardashian meme and convey their pain and struggles and hopefully subsequent triumphs, maybe it would have been the push that I needed to conquer that sadness a little bit sooner in my life or maybe have the luxury of watching it dissipate naturally. If only I knew that this pain was almost a normal, expected response to living in such a dark world, things would have been a lot different and easier for me. And so I want them to be easier for you too. I really want this book to be that thing for someone or that person or that reminder that it's okay. No one is ever as critical of us as we are of ourselves. So that concludes my segment for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to reach me with any inquiries, I'm usually pretty responsive on social media. My Twitter is Marissa underscore underscore Miller. And on Instagram, you can find me at Marissa Miller underscore underscore. You can also check out my website to learn more about my book at www.marissa-miller.com. And if you're interested in getting your own copy of Pretty Weird, Overcoming Imposter Syndrome and Other Oddly Empowering Lessons, it's available everywhere books are sold. Thank you so much for your time. And I wish you all a great rest of your day. Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, 
telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day. Thank you.